Welcome to the Taris Community Church Podcast. Enjoy today's episode. So welcome along this morning. This morning is a very uh, good morning to be in church because I believe that there's a message for each one of us which will bring encouragement to those that are discouraged or feeling dismayed or perhaps under pressure. And whilst that scripture that we read out was very, very long in, compared to what we traditionally do here on a Sunday, the reason why we did so is because it's, um, we're stepping into a different section of Jesus' journey and, and uh, there's a, even though there are different motifs that are scattered throughout that, there's one central theme that pulls it all together. So what we're going to do this morning is that we're going to look at three different parts to that, I suppose, and then we're going to close with hopefully some discussion questions at the end. But let me just set the scene with a little story to begin with. So when I was in year 11 I, um, at Launceston College, I did this subject which basically enabled me to go on bushwalks <laughs> during school time during the year, which was awesome. But what I quickly discovered was that on our, within our class, the people that had selected that elective, there was uh, some who were really excited to be out in that great outdoors and hiking, and then there were others who simply just ticked it on, a, on their form, I suppose, because it was a simple way to sort of bludge and fill out their schedule. And so then we come up to the first um, overnight hike that we had to do, and the teacher organised a fairly simple one to sort of try and weed out those, I suppose, that were serious and those that were sort of just doing it to kill some time. And so we went and did this beautiful walk at Mount Ironstone. And I just remember feeling so apologetic towards my teacher because, like, in the whole lead-up to it, he's been talking about the gear that we need to take. And if you don't have this gear, can you ask a friend or a family member? And if you don't have that gear, don't worry about going and purchasing it because the school has got, like, a library worth of gear so that you don't need to be without type thing. And so we all rock up and there's all these different personalities in the group. Like, I think of one guy that was the army cadets guy and he was just, like, the, the real hardo in the group, I suppose, and just wanted to charge off and had all the gear. And then there was people like uh, my friend Alec who just loved rock climbing, he loved the outdoors and he felt so at home. And then there was the skater boy <laughs> who, despite what the, the teacher sort of instructed, he rocked up with DC skate shoes on and track pants and at every opportunity as we went away on this walk to Mount Einstein, he was trying to duck off to where no one could see him so he could have a bit of a puff. Right, And then there was another girl on our, on our hike and she was sort of the, the girl that rocked up for the, a bushwalk in Ugg boots and a hoodie. And these two in particular, at every sort of like spare moment, they were trying to sneak into one another's tent. So like I felt so sorry for our, for our teacher who sort of had to wrangle us all together and get us from point A to point B. Now we're up on top of Mount Einstein and then one of the girls in our group, we hear this big shriek and this big yell and this big, ah! As it turns out, she's rolled her ankle at what we thought at the time, judging by her screams, that she'd perhaps broken her ankle. And in that moment, rather than us being like a, a group of scattered kittens running off everywhere, it was almost like as if this moment of urgency called for toil, total loyalty to the, to the safety and the well-being of the group, right? So myself and Skater Boy, we raced down the, the hill to, the, to the, um, the hut at the bottom of it to grab the stretcher and we came back up. Others sort of grabbed the, her pack and a few other packs and they transported her down to the bottom of the hill. We put this girl on, on top of this stretcher and we try to walk her down this scraggly mountainous crop I suppose and with every little jolt and turn and twist she just screeched and cried and wailed on and we get to the bottom and then the, the teacher calls in a helicopter and so next week I can't do it but anyway uh, this helicopter comes and arrives and picks up this poor girl and takes her to safety and I'm struck by that scene because as soon as a crisis happened, it was like the, a, a light was switched on for everybody and everybody had to pull together as a team. No longer were we like scattered kittens. 
Now, the funny part, side note to this story, is that I saw this girl 10 days later at school walking, running, jumping, totally fine. So I, I was a little bit resentful as I wondered maybe she just wanted a free ride out of there. But as we, the reason why I bring that story to you is because it's not too dissimilar to what we find here at the beginning of Luke 12. So Luke 11 ends with Jesus having dinner with the Pharisees. And he's very, very critical of them at this dinner, so much so that it's come to be known as the seven woes. And Jesus basically sums up his criticism of them with this verse where he says, you have forgotten the justice and the love of God. And so the Pharisees are naturally furious with Jesus at this point in time, so they go just from scrutinising him to publicly stalking him and publicly opposing him in sort of this part going forward. In other words, the pressure has just gone up a couple of notches. The persecution, the opposition, the resistance towards Jesus as he's heading on this um, journey towards Jerusalem has just increased tenfold. And that's the scene with which we arrive at the start of chapter 12. And so Luke starts off by documenting this, and he's documenting that discipleship or this journey of following Jesus really is a journey. And over the coming sort of sections that we're going to look at this morning, we see that it's not always apparent whom Jesus is talking to. Because as Jesus sets out, a crowd sort of appears around him, a massive crowd, a huge crowd. And so at times it's not really clear if Jesus is talking to the twelve or if he's talking to the crowd. But either way, Jesus seems to be having a dialogue at both of them and at the same time type of thing. And Jesus begins by giving a great warning about the persecution that's to happen or the opposition that's happening. In other words, he's warning his group about the opposition that's rising. And he doesn't so much warn them because it, in some sense it's very, very obvious to them. Rather, he, he, he considers it to be so inevitable that he spends his time warning them on how they should behave. So he's telling them to be prudent and to be wise in their action to be, and he's calling them to be loyal towards him and to his cause. We see this in verse 3 where Jesus is saying to them, look, you've got to be careful about what you gossip about me. You've got to be careful about how much you're gossiping about what you hope that I do. Because remember, the disciples, they hoped that Jesus would overthrow the, the powers of the government and restore Israel's place amongst the nations. And so can you imagine what it would have been like for those that didn't like Jesus in Jerusalem, seeing Jesus with a crowd of thousands heading on towards Jerusalem? And so Jesus is saying, be careful what you do, otherwise you're going to get us all arrested and thrown in, into jail before we even get to Jerusalem. This opposition is rising, this persecution is happening. But then Jesus also sort of uh, explains through this sort of area of the text that our picture of faith and his picture of what faith is is very, very different. So in, in our world, we sort of view Christianity, especially in the West, as this thing that's very Sunday-centric. This thing where we come along on a Sunday and for an hour or two hours, we feel very nice. We feel very safe. Everything's very gentle, gentle. Everything's very, very kind. And then for the remaining 166 hours of the week, for many Christians all over the Western world, we return to our world which is totally uh, removed from having any sort of stake in the mission of God. And Jesus is describing this scene as so much, so not like that. I read one illustration which described that, in fact, following Jesus as it pertains to this part of the journey of Jesus is much more like if you're working in the headquarters of a person that's running for government, running for a seat of high power in a country that's corrupt and violent in which there's the constant warning and there's the constant sort of fear that perhaps you too could be beaten and thrown into jail for what you're believing in. And so to follow Jesus is much more akin to being a part of one of these political parties like in that sort of environment than what it is, just this Sunday-centric thing. And so Jesus comes to this part of the story and 
he comforts his disciples. He says, you know what, guys? You should, despite my warning to you that persecution and pressure and opposition is there, you should not fear. You should never fear. You should not fear other men. The only person that you should fear is God. But then he makes the claim that we have no reason to fear God because of the character of God, because of the goodness of God, because of the mercy of God. And so therefore, fear not. And so I just want to bring this to our attention this morning that I know that some of you here in the room feel like as if there is a great pressure against your witness in the wider world. I know some of you work in industries and in workplaces where you feel like as if you're, there's a constant pressure and a constant pushback upon you for being a Christian. It's hard to have an integrity of witness in that environment. Or some of you perhaps are looking at the state of the world and you feel very dismayed and discouraged because you see it's becoming increasingly post-Christian. Like the stats are showing that more churches are closing every week than opening, more people are leaving the church than finding the church. And you're seeing the way that the wider community is deconstructing Christian values and instead asserting secular ones instead. And I think that some of us feel, or some of us here in the room perhaps feel persecuted or opposed, or we just feel a sense of the heightened pressure that's happening in the world around us. I think Jesus would say to us through this text this morning that we should fear not. I think it encourages to total loyalty towards his cause because what Jesus is really doing through this scripture here this morning, as hard as what it is, is that in the midst of a great moment of pressure, he's calling us to make a hard choice towards a greater integrity of witness. You see, in this, here he also warns against the, the yeast of the Pharisee, right? A yeast works in secret, it works in silence. We don't really see what it's doing until the product is done. And what is the yeast of the Pharisee? Of course, it's hypocrisy. So Jesus is warning us, he's saying, look, don't allow your double standard witness of Christ grow within you, otherwise the hypocrisy will so manifest that you'll forget the love and the justice of God. But instead, Jesus is calling us as a moment of loyalty, much like when my friend snapped her ankle, or supposedly snapped her ankle on the top of a mountaintop to put down our own personal agendas for the agenda of the King of Kings. The pressure is rising. And then it's at this point of the, the, um, the section or the text this morning that we arrive at the, the next part and Jesus is all of a sudden interrupted and it's about a man who has a dispute about money. <laughs> I know, through the gospel just constantly seems to end up talking about this thing called money or possessions, doesn't it? And so this man comes to Jesus and says, would you settle my dispute because I've got this problem with this family member and I want you to settle it for me. And of course, Jesus makes that remarkable claim where he says that life is not found, or some translations translate that word life to salvation. Salvation is not found, life is not found in the abundance of possessions, but rather beware the trap of greed. And he paints a picture of a farmer who's had a bumper crop. And there are several sort of teaching points throughout that as to why this farmer is so criticised by Jesus. But the, the bottom line is this, is that Jesus calls this farmer a fool. He's very, very clear, very blatant in his language. He calls him a fool and what a fool means is somebody who rebels against God or more to the point whose practices rebel against God. The bottom line for what this farmer has so done is that he's looked to secure his own future without any reference towards God. Like I said, there's several teaching points through there which you could pick up on but for the sake of time this morning we're not going to. But the question that always arises to my mind with something like this, where someone is um, so criticised for wealth, is, God, 
in my culture, in my real lifestyle, how much is too much or how much is enough? How much do I get to keep? What does generosity really look like? Like, How do I balance the fact that uh, I have to look after my family, that I have to be a steward of what I've got, that I'm allowed to delight in nice things, I'm allowed to buy food, I'm allowed to do these types of things, but at the same time you're also very, very clear in your word, Jesus, towards a minimal sort of lifestyle and this radical generosity which is to define us. It's very, very confusing at times, God. Like, how do I balance that tension? How do I hold that tension? I was doing some reading recently of some of the people that have gone before us in the faith, and John Wesley was remarkable. An outstanding man. Did you know that when he died in his estate, all that was left in his estate was a coat and two spoons? That was all. And he said this statement just here. Can we just have that one? Thank you. He said, if I leave behind 10 pounds, you and all mankind bear witness against me that I lived and died a thief and a robber. John Wesley was very much of a proponent that we need to view all of our possessions for the ministry of Christ. It's a hard call, that one, though, isn't it? It's a very, very hard call. So much so that John Wesley, by the time he died, it's estimated that he was annually earning about $45,000 in today's terms through his book sales and all these other types of things. But he was able to do so because he's uh, give so much of it away because he'd reduced his cost of living to, in our terms today, $970 per year. <laughs> so in other words, he'd kept just a few percent and given away the other 95%, which is remarkable. So on one side of the tension, you've got uh, the spectrum, you've got radical generosity like this man, John Wesley, but then on the other side of the spectrum, you see all through Scripture, in particular the Old Testament, you see... Uh, people of God having great wealth and yet they weren't disfavoured by God. And you see in Acts, the, the church having their own possessions, their own homes and these types of things, and they weren't displeased by God. And there's this, this question, this tension, well, how do I balance the two? And then we come to Paul's teaching in 1 Timothy 6, and it, again, it seems very conflicted once again, because in verses 6 to 9, uh, Paul sort of makes the case that our generosity should be like the John Wesley sort of example, that, that poverty... Sh- in some sense, is a part of the Christian walk. But then in, later on in the same chapter, it's almost like Paul's um, exalting those that are wealthy and saying that they've got a very special call. So it's very, very confusing, isn't it? Especially when we come to this sort of text here, in the midst of pressure, Jesus is talking about greed and how do we reconcile it? I think what Jesus is saying, both through the text in Timothy, which we won't go to today, but also through this one here, is he's talking about how with our wealth, we have to develop a theology to be able to understand it and a practice to be able to go alongside of it. If we don't, under, if we don't build a, a corresponding theology of the stewardship and finances of God and a practice to go along with it, then that greed will act as a, a snare and an entrapment to us and will be called a fool of, by God. That's what I believe that it means. It's a hard word, isn't it? Very, very much so. And then Jesus goes on and he deconstructs something very related to it but different and all of a sudden he starts talking about anxiety in the remaining of this thing here. And he levels the sort of, the, the point of the blame of anxiety as being a, 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 source, of miscon- um, a source, of, source of confusion before God. And he's, Jesus is sort of talking about anxiety and it's at this point that we have to recall who Jesus is really talking to because For us, it's easy for us to sort of seek finances and seek this security and all this sort of stuff. 
And we look at these words of Jesus and it seems ridiculous outside of faith not to be concerned about what we wear or what we eat or where a source of income is coming from. But then we have to remember who Jesus was talking to and these people were on the very borderline of poverty, on the very borderline of being destitute. Like if they had one injury or illness to a family member, then there was no safety net at all for these people. These were peasants, these were villages that Jesus is speaking to. And yet Jesus is saying to them, look, do not worry about how you'll be fed or, or, or how you'll be sustained or any of these type of stuff, but instead would you lean into the character of God. And this is what I love about Scripture because th- these verses which are on your table in front of you, they, they, both, they soothe our angst, right? Like we read that, if, we've got anxiety, if we're feeling anxious, we can read these verses and they can, they can be like a soothing balm towards us. But what they also do is they, the commands and the warnings of God also go much deeper than that and they can also treat the very root of the issue in our mind and in our being. Scripture does both. It both soothes on the extremity and it also digs down deep underneath. And as I read the verses of, about anxiousness here, I just want to speak into that for a second and I just feel like, it's in particular the women of the room, because the stats show that women have much higher um, anxiety than men, generally speaking. But although, um, if you're a man in this place and if you've got anxiety, it's certainly no shame or anything like that on you at all. Um, and I want to be very, very gentle around this topic because I understand that anxiety is a very big thing and what we're talking about here is only one part of the puzzle and there's still a part of the puzzle for things like medication and counselling and all sorts of other things. But Jesus is also very clear about something about anxiety here as well. But what, one thing that I'm seeing constantly is these things like affirmation cards and different tools and different apps. And these are like these soothing balms that sort of can address and can sort of speak into our anxiousness at different times. And as useful as what they are, what Jesus is saying here is far more profound and it's far more uh, insightful and deep and it cuts to the core of the real issue than what just that is. And Jesus is speaking to, the, would you simply just understand the character of God, the goodness of God, and when you secure yourself to the goodness of God, that it will anchor you so much more than what it's just a, an affirmation card about do not worry, will do. Jesus is here and he's, he's talking about food and drink. He's talking about the ravens and how even they've got something to eat. This being a dirty bird and he's speaking about all of this and yet Jesus is saying, as soothing as my words are to you, the crux of the issue or part of the, the root of the issue is would you come to depend and secure your very being into the presence and the person of God, the goodness and the character of God. And so if you're a, someone in this room and if you've got a, a real sense of anxiousness, again, we're speaking in the context of a great pressure that's rising. If you feel a rising pressure of anxiousness, can I encourage you this morning to take the invitation to secure... to to dwell on the goodness and the character of God. Can I invite you to do that? I think the other invitation that I think the text in here sort of presents to us is I think there's a real cost of living crisis that many of us are feeling at the moment. There's a lot of financial pressure. I think there are several of us in the room that are perhaps struggling with that one. And I just want to encourage us never to waste a good crisis. I just want to encourage us that in the midst of this pressure, in the midst of a crisis... Jesus is saying, would you press on into it and would you allow that, that pressure, that crisis to, to do the, the forming work of discipleship within you? Would you allow it to go deeper within you? Would you instead uh, um, use it as an opportunity to reframe the problem? And then we come up to the third part and this is also another hard part and this is about the fidelity of the, towards the household of God. 
And so Jesus comes to this part and he immediately makes a... Um, he makes reference to Exodus, to Exodus 12, and he says, would you, would you get ready, would you prepare yourself, would you become vigilant? And he's referencing them just before the Exodus where he's saying, look, would you get up and would you get ready, and when I do something, would you be ready to leave? And so that's how Jesus starts off this little parable. And he sets the scene inside that of a Roman house, and of course that was very uh, easily understood at the time. And Within a Roman house, obviously, you've got the master and you've got the servants. And the bigger the, the house, the more honour that the master's got, the more servants there are and the more specific the roles that there are. And you know what? And the house of God is a very big house, and there's room for many, many servants and many, many roles. And here we see the nature of the master being... Jesus or the Father, revealed to us in that the master is going away and so wants to come back and dress to serve the servants. And so we see this almost role reversal, this beautiful thing that takes place, which was forecast back in chapter 1 in Mary's song. But as we go through this one here, it becomes a very, very stark warning to us because Jesus tells the same story basically three times about a master going away and the servants that are entrusted to look after the house and then what happens when they come back? The first time it comes back and the master's been, um, has done the right thing and has been vigilant, has been prepared, he didn't know when the master was going to come back, didn't know if a thief was going to come by, but he, he stayed vigilant, he did his role and he was rewarded greatly for it. The second one, he saw that the master was away and he saw it as an opportunity to abuse the moment, to be able to steal a bit of the money from the lunch tin, so to speak, and to to abuse that power and that privilege and that authority. And the third person simply took it as an opportunity to fall asleep. And you know, when we come to scriptures like this one this morning, it's so easy for us to skip over it because we don't like to talk about it. It's so easy for us to move past it because it's uncomfortable. It's so easy for us not to want to dwell on it because it's just hard. But Jesus is being very, very clear here and he's talking about how fidelity or faithfulness towards the house of God, towards the, 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 the mission of God, very, very much matters. And he's talking about how there is an accountability and he wants to see us have a stake in the mission. And sometimes this scripture here is taken to sort of um, be a reference towards the end of times. I think Luke makes it very, very clear that that's not necessarily the case throughout any of this. Instead, it's about the events that are to come in Jerusalem, the sacking of the city that's to happen by the Romans and also the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But the question that's come to us comes to us out of this text, I suppose. The master's gone away. We're all servants, we've got, all got a role to play. When the master returns, how will he find us? Will he find us vigilant with the things of God, with the household of God? Or will he find us asleep? Or will he find us abusing of our power? Because the consequences for the people that did wrong in this scripture, which you can see right there in front of you, are quite frightening, quite scary. Being torn in two, being beaten. <laughs> like this isn't the nice Jesus that we want to just think about all the time, is it? This is a different kind of Jesus. This is the high pressure Jesus. This is the premiership quarter Jesus. This is the third quarter Jesus, I suppose, in many ways. And so as we translate that to our culture, I wonder if we view our workplaces and our places of ministry, if we believe that we're not a pastor in pews, but rather a congregation or an ecclesia of ministers in every domain of life, in education and in hospitality and construction and everywhere else. And if we're here on the mission of God and looking after the household of God wherever we go, 
in both word and deed? Are we able, are we willing to be vigilant like what Jesus is calling us to be here and looking after the things of God? Are we willing to be accountable for the things of God? Are we active participants or are we asleep on the sidelines and disengaged? It's a hard text this morning. It's a very hard text. But the beautiful thing that comes out of this, we've done well to get through these three parts, my friends. I know that it's a little bit tricky this morning, partly because of the style of teaching. But the bottom line that comes to me from all of this, again, is that Jesus is on the road. He's speaking to a 12 and a crowd, and pressure is mounting. And in each one, Jesus weaves these different motifs into the bigger picture of that when pressure happens, this is when formation also happens. He's saying that in these times of anxiousness, or in these times of scarcity, in these times where the master's gone away and where we've got uncertainty on what our job role is or what we should be doing as it pertains to church, or if there's persecution in my workplace or in my world and I don't really know how to be a witness in it, these are just four of the examples that are scattered throughout this entire chapter. When persecution or when the, when the pressure is rising, it is these moments in which our deep formation really happens, in which there's an invitation to do the harder thing. And you know, we can do such a thing because of the example of Jesus, right? We can take great encouragement from Jesus because of that. Because it was Jesus, of course, who took the, the hardest pathway that went through a garden, that went through a courtroom, that ended up on a cross, and at each juncture point, he chose the kingdom thing. He chose the beautiful thing. And so when we're in the midst of our own pressure and our own pain, A, God empathises us, but B, we also have the, the promise of the fruit that we see from Jesus in that in his death there was also a resurrection. There was a renewal. There was a new life. And so for you this morning, if you feel... Let me rephrase that. As we speak about pressure, I know that for each one of us in our life there's something which makes us feel pressure. And even just talking about that this morning, there's some of you in the, the room and that you can almost feel emotion starting to well up and you don't know where that's coming from, despite the fact that I haven't raised my voice or done nothing emotional. It's simply the fact that we're talking about pressure it's almost like someone's let the cat out of the bag. I think Jesus would like to spend some time with you this morning to invite you to make a kingdom choice and some kingdom decisions in the midst of that. I'd like to encourage you not to waste a good crisis, not to waste a good pressure, but instead to allow it to form you more and more and more into this kingdom person that God's created you to be. So what we've got on the screen here is some questions. So we're going to close with some discussion time here. Um, can we, thank you, mate. So I'd love for you guys to have a conversation at your table. How did the Holy Spirit speak to you today? What in particular? Second one, we identified the following pressures. Did any of these resonate with you? Persecution of witness, greed, anxiety, or disengagement? If none of those, perhaps something else does. But we all can identify some sort of pressure in our life. And I think Jesus would invite us not to run away from it, not to neglect it, not to numb out from it, not to turn to the bottle, not to turn to gaming, not to turn to doom scrolling, but instead to look at our pressure and ask that kingdom question of God, how is it that you're wanting me to step through this and then what application can you take today let's be really specific about that so like if it's greed what does some unreciprocal generosity look like if it's anxiety can we name something that relates around that 
and a step that we can take. If, is, if it's disengagement from the house of God and the purposes of God's mission, how can I take a step towards that today? So my friends, I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to close the service from here. So if you'd like to leave, you're more than welcome to leave. But I would really encourage you to stick around for the next five or ten minutes and have a conversation with one another about this morning's text. Now the wonderful thing about this morning's text is that it's not even 100% consensus within the Christian world. So you might find there's parts that you disagree with me about or disagree with people at your table about, and that's okay. We're all here pursuing Jesus together, aren't we? So let me pray for you. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you just convict us this morning? Would you just speak gently to us this morning? I just think of some of the pressure and the disappointment, the dismay, the persecution, the opposition, whatever it is that we feel in the world around us. Um, I just thank you that you are there in the midst of it, that you are Emmanuel, that you are God with us. And so this morning, would you give us strength? Would you give us courage? Would you renew our spirit? But also, would you help us to grow in character? Would you help us to grow in our formation into the image of you, grow into being persons of love? Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We hope that you've enjoyed the message and that it's had great impact on you. If you want prayer, would like to connect with us further, or you just have questions, we would love to chat. You can find us at www.taroscommunitychurch.com.au or you can find us on Facebook. Have a great week.